Hey, Yellow Car listeners, this is Ashley Korslin. Because you listen to this podcast, I wanted to tell you about a new series I've been working on that's finally available. It's called Should Be Alive. Throughout the series, I investigate the 2019 murder of a 17-year-old girl named Nikki Kuhnhausen in Vancouver, Washington. You're about to hear the first episode, and when you finish listening, check out the second episode, which is available now. Just search for Should Be Alive wherever you listen to this show. This series includes discussions of sensitive topics, including transphobia, homophobia, sexual violence, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. Uh, this is Detective David Jensen with Vancouver Police, and the date is October 2nd, 2019. The time is 6.35 p.m. It's been four months, almost to the day, since a teenage girl seemingly disappeared from her hometown of Vancouver, Washington. Were you aware that this is recording? Yep. Do I have your consent to record this conversation? Yep. Okay, also with me is... This is the first time detectives are getting to talk to the man they believe was the last person to see 17-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen. It's been a game of cat and mouse, just getting him here to answer questions. Do you have any idea why? Well, I'm mean, asking you. I was told missing person's case. Okay, that's, that's it. But I, uh, I did run across this person just just once. I saw her walking. I walked up to her. Um, I asked her why is she walking alone in the middle of the night, and she said that she had some big fight with her boyfriend, and she's really upset. And. Uh, um, These detectives have seen just about everything in their decades solving crimes. But this interview is frustrating. They know they have their suspect sitting right in front of them. They just don't have enough evidence to arrest him. Did you guys drink anything together? Um, I did have vodka with me and I offered some vodka for her. Okay. Um. With no body and no proof of a crime, they hang on every last word the man says hoping he trips up on his story. Do you, do you see why I want to talk to you? Mm, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. The interview goes on for almost an hour. So, so you're the last person to ever see her? They try hard. I don't know. But investigators just can't seem to get the man to give them anything. He sticks to his story, that he has no idea what happened to Nikki. The last I saw of her was when I asked her to get out of the car, that's it. And that was just right there in the middle of the street. See, that's not how people disappear. That's not how stuff happens to people. Getting out of the car or walking away is not how people disappear. So what do you think happened to her? I have no idea. Is she alive? (laughs) I don't know. By now, they're exasperated and exhausted. The detectives finally decide to call it a night, and all they can do is watch as their main suspect walks out the door. I'm your host, Ashley Korslin. Welcome to Should Be Alive, a KGW original podcast. 
Episode 1 of 6, Into Thin Air. On a warm, sunny day in June of 2019, four months before that police interview, people fill Esther Short Park in downtown Vancouver, Washington, a city just across the Columbia River from Portland, Oregon. It's just days before the official start to summer. A bunch of kids excitedly skip around a playground during a game of tag. People walk by with their dogs, enjoying the town's farmer's market. They sample locally produced honey and coffee and line up in front of tables to buy fresh cut flowers and little trinkets. While families bask in the sunshine on this idyllic, easy Saturday morning, there's a small group of people on the fringe of the park. They're taping up flyers on streetlights and stop signs. They're missing posters of a local teenager who no one's heard from for several days. The flyers show four photos of a dark-haired 17-year-old. In large red letters plastered across the top of the page are the words, Have you seen me? Below, it lists the name Nikki Kuhnhausen, 5 foot 8, 120 pounds, hazel eyes. Uh, my name is Lyndon Walls, and I'm an activist and a local trans person. And pronouns, would you like me to use? I use they, them pronouns. Great. Um, Lyndon Walls, a local writer and content creator, had seen the group a few times around town, taping up flyers. Um, They had a large media outreach to have people spread the word that Nikki was missing. And so I saw them walking downtown Vancouver. The flyering effort kind of was centered around the places that Nikki was most comfortable. So Esther Short, downtown you know, kind of expanding into the uptown region. In the beginning, Lyndon didn't know much about Nikki or really anything regarding the circumstances of her disappearance. It's not unusual for teens to go missing here from time to time. Statistically, most run away from home and eventually come back. But this felt different to Lyndon. The people trying to spearhead this grassroots search effort seemed to have a sense of urgency and they were effective with their messaging. After seeing the posters around town, it didn't take long for Lyndon to see social media posts about Nikki too. One after the next, the posts, shares, and comments kept coming. An extensive amount of people who were posting about it, and so I was looking into it. Many sharing the story were LGBTQ plus people. That's because Nikki was transgender. Knowing that a trans female teenager was missing, um, those stories don't usually end very well. Uh, And so I was kind of keeping an eye on it from then. Lyndon was painfully aware of societal judgments and especially the alarming increase in recent acts of violence against the trans community. Deadly attacks against transgender Americans. Headlines around the United States were actively pointing to an epidemic of violence, with 2018 being the worst for deadly assaults against transgender Americans. The most ever recorded in a year. The year before was the previous deadliest on record, with at least 29 transgender gender people murdered, according to the Human Rights Campaign. These are the faces of trans women of color who were all murdered in cold blood. 
just as Nikki Kuhnhausen's name was cycling around the internet in the Pacific Northwest in 2019, advocates in Jacksonville, Florida, feared a string of transgender murders was the work of a serial killer. A lot of the people in the LGBTQ community are on edge. You think there's a serial murderer um, out there? It raises a lot of concern. Concern that's only gotten worse after another transgender woman was found dead at this motel in Bay Meadows Sunday afternoon. Although no one knew yet if Nikki Kuhnhausen's gender identity played a role in her disappearance, Lyndon Walls couldn't shake that uneasy feeling that it had and that something terrible had happened to the teenager. Putting myself in back in that space, like I was still at that point wrestling with being an out trans person. I didn't transition or even know about those things until later in life. And so wrestling with understanding the risks that come with being a trans person and then having that in literally in my face, just the sinking feeling of despair of this child is missing and their family is grieving that. And I can get a little obsessive about media. And so I was like, I, I kind of need some help with some boundaries around this because it it's it's heavy and heartbreaking. Lyndon set up Google Alerts for Nikki's name so they would get a notification anytime a news story was published about the case. Do you consider yourself a bit of a news junkie? Oh yeah, definitely a news junkie. And we start with breaking news, a missing transgender woman out of Vancouver. And by mid-June, Nikki's story was broadcast on television stations around the Portland area. Police there are sending us this photo of Nikki Kuhnhausen, last seen leaving her home on Wednesday, June 5th, almost two weeks ago. She's about 5 foot 8 inches tall, 120 pounds. She has black hair. If you spot her or know anything about her whereabouts... But the news coverage didn't get quite the response that... That Lyndon had hoped for. There didn't seem to be widespread concern from the community or an overwhelming urge to help. Did you think at the time there was perhaps a perception or stigma that because Nikki was trans that, oh, she must have just run away or, oh, she left on her own? Was there that at first? Yeah, I think so. Um, there was a level of community response to it's just another troubled teen who's run away. Oh, how sad. The community's response, if you go and look at the social media posts from different news organizations when Nikki was missing, and you look at the comments, it's a lot of really negative, she ran away. You know, the idea that she would have run away or the experience that a lot of missing trans women have the people who are missing them have is that it's not taken seriously. That to be trans means you are so hurting and so broken that you would hurt yourself or run away or need to escape or hide. And that's what hurt most for Nikki's friends and family. They knew Nikki would never abandon her loved ones. Something must have happened to her or someone must have taken her against her will. So what we'll do to start, Lisa, we'll just um, tell me your first and last name and tell me your relationship to Nikki. Okay, my name is Lisa Woods, and Nikki Kuhnhausen is my daughter. Lisa Woods knew Nikki better than anyone, 
and Nikki was fiercely loyal to her mom. The two talked every day, sometimes more than once. And they didn't have your typical mother-daughter relationship either. It was like their roles were reversed. There were times where Nikki was more like the mom. She always checked in on Lisa, who had struggled with substance abuse at times in her life and battled mental health issues. I was working at Walmart for probably almost six years, and um, I would talk to her once a day before my shift. You know, um, I struggle with anxiety, and um, there were a couple times where we I didn't get through till my lunch or whatever, but um, when I did, you know, was able to talk to her, and um, I wouldn't have to take my medicine, you know. Um, I would just be able to go to work. So when Nikki all of a sudden stopped responding to messages, Lisa knew something was up. That was just not Nikki. When did you first know that Nikki had disappeared? Or at first were you like, she'll be back? Or was it totally... No, I knew I knew that first day. I knew the first day. Uh, Nikki and I never went very long without talking to each other. Um... Even though she was just 17, Nikki had been living independently of her parents for a while. Lisa says Nikki lived a transient lifestyle, often couch surfing at friends' places. So Lisa didn't always know where Nikki was staying, but Nikki always checked in with her mom. And um, that night when I went to bed on the 6th, when my messages had gone unseen, I knew something was wrong. What was it like in between those days? What was going through your mind? I uh, made a pillowcase out of her, because that Saturday before that, she had given me her hoodie that she had made. She designed her own clothes, made them hers, you know, and um, she had given me that sweatshirt to wash, and I hadn't washed it yet. So I put it on my pillow as a pillowcase, and I slept with my Bible and a picture of her, and I prayed for those four days. For the next several days, Lisa's hopeful calls and texts went unanswered. Her nights were long and restless. Lisa kept praying that Nikki would just show up at home. Maybe she'd have a wild excuse about where she'd been. But by June 10th, Lisa couldn't wait any longer. She called the police and filed a missing persons report. I got the phone call from her um, saying that Nikki was missing. Lisa also called Nikki's best friend, Taylor Watts. I immediately messaged Nikki, just hoping that she would um, reply to me. Um, She didn't. So when I started seeing that my messages weren't delivering, uh, uh, I knew something was wrong. Uh, And it turns out something was wrong. Uh, Taylor, who had known Nikki since they were kids, began spending her evenings driving around Vancouver with another friend named Ariel. They felt helpless and really didn't know where to go or where to look. Every night, um, there was plenty of times where uh, me and Ariel would go just like looking in neighborhoods and stuff. um, Just because, you know, maybe we would see her somewhere. Uh, We never did. Um, We would, you know, go around apartments or like, you know, where we last would see her. Um, uh, We never found her, so I had already thought something bad. Um, Unfortunately, I thought the worst, and, you know, it was the worst that had happened. It's always an open wound. Each day that passed without her daughter was excruciating for Lisa Woods, but soon she found an ally in a detective who would spearhead the investigation into Nikki Kuhnhausen's disappearance. 
I was blessed with a detective named Dave Jensen, and Dave is the one that kept putting that hope um, inside me. Um, you know, he he believed he would bring her home alive. Uh, I'm uh, David Jensen. I usually go by Dave. Detective David Jensen became the primary investigator on Nikki's case. I'm employed by the Vancouver Police Department, and I've been a detective for about six years now. Before becoming a police officer, Jensen worked for Microsoft as a software test engineer. Before that, he tested and deployed websites. As a detective for the Vancouver Police Department, Jensen is assigned to the Digital Evidence Cybercrime Unit, or DECU, which is affiliated with the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. And that unit currently has a few different jobs, uh, child exploitation cases, child pornography cases. We also take care of forensics for uh, electronic forensics, digital for a variety of different units and different crimes and even outside agencies. Uh, But we also have the missing persons function in the department. And so I am uh, responsible for missing persons investigations. What type of personality does it take to work the cases you do? You have to get used to the idea of falling behind at a slower rate rather than catching up. I have likened it to standing on the bank of a river and it's a big filthy nasty dirty river with ugly horrible fish floating by and some of these fish eat children and uh but you just stand on the edge of the bank and you just dip your pole in and you can get one fish at a time right and the best you can do is just put your put your rod in there and pull a fish out um and pull out as many fish as you can choose the ugliest fish that you can Um, or you can sit there and scream at the river all day, you know, because of how ugly and horrible and overwhelming and awful it is, and think about what kind of ugly lake it must enter into, or or, or what a horrible well source spring it must have come from, or or whatever. You just kind of do uh, what you can. You just have to just accept the fact that you can't fix everything. Uh, You can't can't take on every case, and you have to be uh, judicious. What about the the missing persons element of your job? Are those cases especially difficult just because you have families with no sense of closure? They don't know what happened and oftentimes can be left for months, years, not knowing? That can be. Cases like that are the outliers. You know, keep that in mind. Most cases of missing persons uh, that we take are cases where some loved one or an acquaintance even sometimes falls off the radar. It could be somebody that decides that they want to end a relationship and they don't know how to use their words. So they just simply leave. Um, sometimes it's simply uh, people choosing to, to go and to be missing frequently. It is rare, Jensen says, for missing persons cases to turn into something criminal or sinister, and it would be an outlier for a child or teenager not to return home after running away. But those cases do happen occasionally, so detectives always have to weigh what's a genuine emergency and what's not. In June of 2019, Nikki's was one of several missing persons cases that landed on Detective Jensen's desk, and he had to consider all the possibilities, which at first was tough for Lisa. He he was he was very kind uh, from the very beginning. He um, tried to argue with me about her, you know, off with some friends or you know, just having a good time, and 
needing a break from mom or, you know, and I explained that that wasn't the case. And he never discounted my, you know, feelings. Um, but he had more hope on board than I did. Any child missing from a home is, is just by default called a runaway. And it's a label that's not necessarily descriptive of what the real situation is, right? But looking at it, you said, okay, well, this is a kid who's couch surfing somewhere and hasn't come back again to where she's couch surfing from. As Detective Jensen got to know Lisa better and learned about Lisa and Nikki's close relationship, he determined this was not some runaway teen. Nikki had nothing to run away from. She was living with friends, free of her parents' rules and curfews. She was doing whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted. First of all, she and Nikki were in constant contact with each other. They either called or shared messages or, or whatever on a nearly daily basis. And it was extremely unusual for Nikki to go silent on social media. Uh, she was pretty much a, a constant user, I think, of Facebook and Instagram. And all that just stopped. After the first press release from police and subsequent news coverage, people started calling in with tips and information. One caller reported seeing Nikki at a local grocery store. Another tip came from a man who had just gone to jail but claimed to have been with Nikki before she disappeared. I actually went to uh, prison in Oregon to go talk to him. And he's like, yeah, I, I know Nikki because she's the sister of a friend of mine. That tip turned out to be a dead end, as were most of the rest. Early on, there were a number of uh, leads I had to track down that basically really were based on people saying that so-and-so said something about her uh, and seems to know what happened to her. And it turns out it's just people speculating what happened to her and they have no knowledge whatsoever. It's just people running their mouths. But it, it was more just sort of following one theory of what happened and then just hitting a wall. Then, about two weeks after anyone last saw Nikki, Detective Jensen got information that would give him a new lead. It came from two people Nikki had been staying with at the time of her disappearance, her roommates. Jensen met with both women, Tiffany and Faith. Tiffany explained that Nikki had left their apartment late in the evening of June 5th and returned a couple hours later in the early morning hours of June 6th. Nikki was holding a bottle of vodka and wearing a man's coat. Nikki told Tiffany that she had been out with a Russian male in a gold car. Nikki planned to go back out to meet the man again to give him back his jacket and said he was going to help her get a cell phone because she had lost hers. Tiffany said she tried arguing with Nikki not to go back out, but couldn't stop her. Nikki seemed worried, but still wanted to leave, Tiffany recalled. Nikki didn't take any of her belongings, including makeup or clothes. She left the apartment around 6.30 a.m. Tiffany never saw her again. The other roommate, Faith, had even better information for Detective Jensen. Faith had gone to jail on drug charges hours after Nikki left their apartment and had just been released when Jensen came to interview her, so she hadn't shared this story with anyone. Faith told Detective Jensen that Nikki had logged into her own Snapchat account on Faith's phone before Nikki left to meet up with the unidentified man. When Faith later tried to log into Snapchat, she found Nikki's username. 
The password wasn't saved, so Faith couldn't see what conversations Nikki had that night. But Faith had taken a screenshot of Nikki's username. But this, this information about the, the use of Snapchat was, was not available, I don't think, to any of us until she got out of jail. Knowing that Nikki had potentially used Snapchat to communicate with the man she had met was a huge clue, but not enough for Detective Jensen to jump to the conclusion that a crime had been committed. First, Jensen needed to identify the Russian male, and the key to doing that would be to access Nikki's Snapchat account. To get a search warrant for records, I have to have probable cause for a crime. So a person being missing is not probable cause for a search warrant. Uh, So the other avenue that is left open is to get an emergency disclosure request submitted and see if the the provider will uh, honor that request. Provider meaning Um, Sprint, Verizon? Sprint, Verizon, Snapchat, Google, whoever the company is that you think has that emergency information. Jensen's best option was to make an emergency records disclosure request to Snapchat. Essentially, he had to make a case to the company that Nikki was at imminent risk of harm or death. Jensen requested all the login history for Nikki's account and the usernames for any accounts she contacted. He knew it was a crapshoot, but it was all he had. So if you make a good case, then uh, they will do it. You know, and I'm always a little worried. It's like, okay, well, it's been a couple of weeks. You know, can I really make the argument that something bad is about to happen, right? Uh, But we don't know what has happened. We don't know if she's being held in a dungeon somewhere and being kept against her will, or we we don't know. Within a few hours of Jensen's request... Luckily, Snapchat said yes. Snapchat sent back basic subscriber information for Nikki's account and IP address history. Jensen could see that Nikki logged into her account two times and logged out two times. The final logout time was 5.34 a.m. But Snapchat denied his request for account information for the person Nikki was talking to. So the next day, on June 27th, Jensen wrote a search warrant, got it approved by a judge, and served it to Snapchat. The company returned the records that same day and gave Jensen exactly what he was looking for. If you get records from Snapchat, they give it to you in all these little spreadsheets. And there's a spreadsheet called Chats, and there's a spreadsheet called Snaps. So a snap is basically, you'll take a quick moment in time, maybe a, a, a three-second video or a photo. You'll have a little comment or a giggle or a, or a smiley face or, or whatever on there, and then you'll send it to the person or persons They'll look at it and see it, and then it'll expire in five seconds or 10 minutes, whatever you have it set to, to disappear. So, and then the chats are actually more like chats that you're familiar with in Messenger or SMS. So those are just, those are there, and then they're just stored. He was anxious as he flipped through the pages of documents from Snapchat. Jensen scanned his finger down the page and stopped when he found the column that read Snaps. It showed the username of the account Nikki had been communicating with, perhaps the single most important piece of information he needed. There were two snaps from a man with the username Bogdan underscore David and one from Nikki to him. 
Jensen dropped his gaze farther down the page as he continued reading. He flipped to a second spreadsheet called Chats. This section contained the content of the messages exchanged. This proved to be even more helpful. The document showed that between 4.51 a.m. and 5.36 a.m. on June 6th, Bogdan underscore David sent the following messages to Nikki. Okay. 1700 Main Street, Vancouver, Washington. LOL. I'm here. White van, LOL, again. The messages appeared to illustrate a meetup between the two. But who was Bogdan underscore David? That was going to take extra work for Jensen to figure out. Now that Detective Jensen had the Snapchat username for the person who likely last communicated with Nikki Kuhnhausen, he was able to establish probable cause. Probable cause is, is another good phrase, is probably because um, it's, it's just, I suspect a crime took place, right? It has to be a reasonable, a reason someone reasonably thinks, hey, I've got a good reason to think a crime took place here. He sat down at his computer and started typing another search warrant, this time for Bogdan underscore David's account. This type of work is slow and tedious, not like you see in TV police procedurals where detectives solve murders in 24 hours. This type of investigation is time-consuming and thorough, and it usually involves dozens, sometimes hundreds of pages of data, which is just what Detective Jensen got back from Snapchat, a mountain of numbers, times, locations, and other details that he would have to painstakingly review. But... It was time well spent. The search warrant returned everything Jensen could have hoped for, including the identity of Bogdan underscore David. His name? David Bogdanov. Jensen also received the man's email address and phone number associated with the Snapchat account and a spreadsheet titled Geolocations. It's a feature of Snapchat that periodically tracks a user's approximate location when using the app. Uh, because not all people have that feature turned on. And, and not all people have their phones set up so that the phone is keeping track of where it is necessarily all the time. Okay. And then uh, simply Snapchat was then using that to, to keep track of, of uh, where he was and so that that could be used by the application as needed as a feature. That meant Detective Jensen could see where David Bogdanov's phone traveled in the hours before Nikki's disappearance, at least while he was using Snapchat. The data showed David's phone in Vancouver, near the vicinity of the King James Apartments. That's where Nikki had been staying. One hour later, Snapchat indicated that David's device was located outside the Uptown Apartments, 1700 Main Street. That's the same address David had sent Nikki in a Snapchat message. Whether or not he actually did something, you know, we really want to talk to him because he's the last person that we can tell that she has spoken to. Did you think she was alive at that point? I think I was probably leaning to about 75% thinking that she had something had happened to her. That she was dead? Either that she was dead or that she was no longer uh, able to answer. You know, if she had been maybe 
pressed into maybe a, a trafficking kind of situation or something, or something was being controlled. You know, didn't, didn't know. But um, I felt that we were about 75% something has something has occurred to Nikki. As the investigation progressed, Detective Jensen learned David Bogdanov was a 25-year-old construction worker who lived in the Vancouver area. He owned a business called Pinnacle Flooring and worked with his brothers. After unsuccessfully attempting to locate David at his last known address, Jensen and another detective decided it was time to pay the Bogdanov brothers a visit. They started with Arthur Bogdanov. Arthur basically talked about David as if he was like a a long-lost relative, somebody that he doesn't really talk to very much. And, uh, you know, they maybe almost he's exasperated with, and David does his thing. I don't know. You know, I don't know anything about what you're asking about. Um, You know, he didn't know anything about the case, about didn't know anything about David's encounter with this person. And uh, when I asked, well, do you have any idea where David is right now? He said, I don't know. I think he might be backpacking. This whole claim that Arthur knew nothing about his brother's whereabouts, complete BS, according to Jensen. You know, just based on my, uh, you know, my spidey sense, I didn't believe a word of what he said. Um, And I felt he was just, you know, covering for for his brother. Before leaving, Detective Jensen gave Arthur his business card and asked him to give it to David if he saw him. Then the detectives went to the address David had given Nikki in the Snapchat message. It turns out that's where David's other brother, Stan Bogdanov, lived. Jensen knocked several times on the door. He paused for a minute before knocking again and listened. He could hear a man inside talking on the phone in Russian and was on the other side of the door talking very loudly and very animatedly for, I think, almost five minutes before he actually came to the door and let us in. And I really wish I, I could understand Russian like that. Just as Jensen took a quick breath to calculate his next move, a man abruptly opened the door. It was Stan Bogdanov. To Jensen's surprise, Stan agreed to talk with them in an outdoor courtyard. The men sat down together at a small table, Jensen explained the reason for their visit and the general circumstances of Nikki Kuhnhausen's disappearance. And then he similarly, you know, said, you know, well, don't really see David very frequently and still trying to distance himself from his brother. And at that point, I'm, I'm like, okay, we've got a, you know, we've got a wall of denial here going on in the family. At the end of their conversation, Stan offered up a phone number for David, different from the one Detective Jensen had gotten from the Snapchat records. Jensen only had a Verizon number. The number Stan gave them was for a Sprint account. So over the next few days, Jensen called both numbers multiple times. He also visited four more locations looking for David and tried to contact more family members and friends. As a last-ditch effort, he left business cards with David's girlfriend and other siblings. But thanks to that Sprint phone number, Jensen now had a new avenue to investigate David. He wrote a search warrant for that account, and the records revealed that the night David Bogdanov met Nikki Kuhnhausen, David had made a series of phone calls to a variety of numbers. In about a one-hour period, I guess... He made somewhere between a 10 and a dozen phone calls to phone numbers with all kinds of different area codes. It looked odd. 
Jensen used a computer database to look up each of those phone numbers and discovered they were all connected to prostitution ads. David had called 15 numbers between 4 and 4.30 a.m. on June 6, the morning Nikki went missing. One of those numbers was for an adult video store in Portland, Oregon. And I don't know if you're aware of the world of prostitution and of casual encounters, but a common place for people to meet people that they're going to have a casual sexual encounter with would be at an adult video store. Looking at all those ads, none of them appeared to be Nikki. The idea that she was missing because she was engaged in prostitution was becoming less and less of a, of a possibility. Partly A, because you know he's calling numbers for prostitutes and, and Nikki doesn't have a phone, right? But he met this girl on a night when he was definitely on the prowl for sex. So it gives you an idea what his state of mind was, what his motivation was. So how did Nikki Kuhnhausen meet this man? And where was she? The only way to know, detectives would have to find their person of interest, David Bogdanov. It was highly likely that only he could tell them what happened to Nikki. The only problem, David was long gone. He left the country the same day that Nikki disappeared. Next time on Should Be Alive. I think it kind of opened her eyes a little bit, unfortunately. Like to, to the people she was maybe hanging yeah, out with? Yeah, and to be careful. I was growing increasingly suspicious that David would know something about her, her disappearance. She was loving, she was caring, she was happy, so fun. She was my heart and soul. Were you surprised he agreed to do an interview in the first place? I think he realized that I was not going to go away. They're not going to tell this story later? Oh, later? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did, I did. I mean, this is something that people are going to talk about. Should Be Alive is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please follow and leave us a rating or review. We've got a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash shouldbealive and on the KGW YouTube page. This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin and Nick Bieber. Audio assistance by Andy Thomas and Vince Jones. And digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and promotion by Will Mahon and Jennifer Woodruff. Our Tegna legal counsel is Will Herman. Special thanks to Lyndon Walls with IdeaStack Creative, KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retsinas, and the entire KGW staff. And if you like this show, check out our other podcasts, Urge to Kill and The Yellow Car. <laughs>